Good morning, Applewood. I'm so happy to welcome uh, you on this Mother's Day morning. Um, special welcome to all of our moms and uh, anyone who's visiting or new to the church. Uh, we're glad that you tuned in today. Um, I want to read a short story for you. Uh, it's called The Invisible Mother by Nicole Johnson. One night, a group of us were having dinner, celebrating the return of a friend from England. Janice had just gotten back from a fabulous trip and was telling wonderful stories. I was sitting there looking around at the others all put together so well. It was hard not to compare and feel sorry for myself. I was feeling pretty pathetic when Janice turned to me with a beautifully wrapped package and said, I brought this for you. It was a book on the great cathedrals of Europe. I wasn't exactly sure why she'd given it to me until I read her inscription to Charlotte with admiration for the greatness of what you are building when no one sees. In the days ahead, I would read the book and I would discover what would become for me four life-changing truths after which I would pattern my work. No one can say who built the great cathedrals. We have no record of their names. These builders gave their whole lives for a work that they would never see finished. They made great sacrifices and expected no credit. The passion of their building was fueled by their faith that the eyes of God saw everything. It was almost as if I heard God whispering to me, I see you, Charlotte. I see the sacrifices you make every day, even when no one around you does. No act of kindness you've done, no sequin you've sewn on, no cupcake you've baked is too small for me to notice and to smile over. You are building a great cathedral, but you can't see right now what it will become. I keep the right perspective when I see myself as a great builder, as one of the people who show up at a job that, will, that I will never see finished to work on something that their name will never be on. As mothers, we are building great cathedrals. We cannot be seen if we're doing it right, which is why we may feel invisible some days. And one day, it's very possible that the world will marvel not only on what we have built, but at the beauty that has been added to the world by the sacrifices of invisible mothers. I want you mamas to feel encouraged today. We love you and God is smiling over you. Please pray with me as we begin our worship. Father God, we love you. Thank you for being a God of the details, big and small. Be with Guy and Allie this morning and fill our hearts and minds. We pray these things in your sweet name. Amen. Well, good morning, Applewood family. I am uh, looking at you through my screen again. Just got to say, this is getting incredibly boring. <laughs> and I am longing for the day to see you in real life. Let's hope, let's pray that it's soon before I lose my mind, which I, there's not much left to lose. So that's a, that's a prayer worth praying. Happy Mother's Day. I want to add my, my words to uh, Janine's. This morning, thank God for mothers. Have you ever wondered where we'd be without mothers? <laughs> well, we wouldn't be, that is, period. But uh, even more than mothers, I thank God for women. And every year I 
on this this Mother's Day, it it sort of elicits from me some some things that I want to say because not every one of you that is listening to this this morning, every every lady is 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 a mother, um, and I want to say a few words that are what I hope honoring to to all women, regardless of whether they are a mother or not. We uh, we live in a world where far too often women are not honored. Even in many Christian circles, the highest honor of a woman is sometimes assigned to her role as the wife. The woman's honor in relationship to the man. Ladies, I believe you should be honored for who you are, regardless of whether you are a wife or mother. You are to be honored and esteemed, and you are equal in worth to any man, anywhere. And as a community of people who follow Jesus, Applewood Community Church must always be a place where, where we are committed to that truth. Women are to be honored and esteemed as the image bearers that they are. And we believe scripture teaches that women are created in the image of God. They are co-equal image bearers with men. Now, to be sure, in some circles, there are men who want to make a big deal out of the fact that the first woman was created after the first man, that in that there is some order of priority. The woman was created to be a helper for the man. Women, however, understand that being created second, God was simply improving on his first masterpiece <laughs> and saving the best for last. And I would add that smart men also understand that. So ladies, please know that this congregation and the denomination to which we belong believes that you are a first-class human being in every way. We affirm the full gifting and calling of women in the life of the church. And in this world where women are way too often devalued and objectified by men, we stand for kingdom of God values, where women are esteemed and honored, not for what they do, first and foremost, but for who they are, image bearers of God and precious to him. Just want you to know that. That's my heart, and that is the heart's desire of our congregation. Well, perhaps you know the name Chris, uh, Ken Davis. He's a Christian comedian. Tells the story of a woman who who looked out of her window one day and saw her German shepherd shaking the life out of a neighbor's rabbit. And her family did not get along well with these neighbors, and so this was going to be a disaster. So she grabbed a broom, she ran outside, she pummeled her dog with that broom until he dropped the extremely dead rabbit out of its mouth. She panicked. What was she going to do? So she grabbed the rabbit, she took it inside, she gave it a bath. She blow-dried it to its original fluffiness. She combed it until that rabbit was looking good. And then she snuck over to the neighbor's yard and she propped the rabbit up inside of its cage. An hour later, she heard screams from her neighbor. She asked, what's going on? The neighbor said, our rabbit, our rabbit. He died two weeks ago. We buried him and now he's back. <laughs> well, in his typical humorous style, John Ortberg, refers to this story to underscore the miracle of the resurrection. He says simply, you know, people in the ancient world believed that dead rabbits tend to stay dead, and dead rabbis tend to stay dead. 
And he's absolutely right. The, the resurrection is so central to our faith, especially those of us who have been followers of Jesus for, for decades. The resurrection of Jesus is just a fact that we, we forget how, how outrageous the idea really is. And here's the thing. There were others in that era who claimed to be the Messiah. Josephus, our first century Jewish historian, names several different would-be messiahs. N.T. Wright points out that there were many messianic movements in the first century. In every case, the would-be messiah got killed by Rome, just as Jesus did. And in not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Dead people tend to stay dead. And that's true in my experience. And I'm guessing that that's probably true in your experience as well. But in these post-resurrection stories, we are getting to see firsthand the followers of Jesus wrestle with the miracle of his return from the dead. He didn't stay dead. And even though he told them ahead of time that this was going to happen, <clears throat> it still rocked their lives more than we can really imagine. But that's why we are looking at them in this Easter tide season. These stories, I think, are so significant. Those followers learned some incredibly important lessons, and we can learn those things as well. So our story this morning, no exception, it's another appearance of the risen Jesus to one of his followers who has been referred to through the centuries as Doubting Thomas. And our text is found in John 20. It's the same text that we were in last week because this story in John's Gospel follows right after Jesus' appearance to his followers when they were together. John writes, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. And remember, Jesus walked in and spoke those words to them, peace be with you. So, I want you to grab your Bible, turn to John chapter 20. <clears throat> we're going to read together verses 24 to 29, and I invite you, wherever you are, if you can, stand. Stand in respect for God's Word as we read it together. We're going to begin with verse 24 in John 20. We'll read down through verse 29. All right, here we go. Let's read together. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting 
and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Well, go ahead and sit back down. The setting for this story, John tells us, is one week later in the house again. We don't know the house, but the disciples gathered there and they knew that they could gather there. And with the doors locked, it, it, it felt somewhat safe. They had been there on the previous Sunday, which was the eve of Resurrection Day, when Jesus appeared to them for the first time. Now, I want you to notice a couple of details that John provides that I think helps create the drama in this story and and, and what makes the lesson in this story there are many, but the lesson that I want to zero in on this, this morning makes it so important. The first detail, John writes that Thomas called Didymus. Now that's the Hebrew and the Greek word there. Thomas is a Hebrew word. Didymus is a Greek word. They both mean twin. So John is basically saying, now twin, who's called twin, for one of the 12 was not with the disciples. Thomas, one of the 12. Now, that's important because we know that the 12 who had been with Jesus the longest, we can assume that because they had spent so much time with him, they knew Jesus well. So John wants us to know that Thomas called Didymus, twin the twin, was not a casual observer of the life of Jesus. He had spent much time up close and personal. That Thomas wasn't there in this gathering. But obviously he was in touch with the other followers. At least he knew where to find them. And they knew where to find him. And they told him, we have seen the Lord. They told him. That's the second detail here in this story. The verb tense that John uses here suggests a repeated action. So we we could read it, they told him several times. Or they kept telling him. John wants us to know This was not a a one-off kind of a deal. This was not a, oh, by the way, what is implied here is more the sense of, Thomas, what the heck is wrong with you, pal? We have seen Jesus. Why don't you believe us? Good question. So, I want you to Think on this question for just a moment. Turn to someone if you're worshiping with someone else and and ask them, why do you think Thomas was so obstinate? 
why was he so unwilling to believe the eyewitness of the others to the resurrection of Jesus? Think about that. Talk about that for just a minute or so. We'll be back. Doug Benson. Let's hear it, brother. What do you got? <clears throat> well, I think um, earlier in the chapter, it talks about when Mary saw, and then she went back and reported to Peter. And it says that they, I think Peter ran. And when he saw, he believed. Yeah. So seems like uh, seeing has something to do with believing and that no one was willing to take anyone's word. They wanted to see for themselves. <laughs> I like that, Doug. Yeah. Good observation. I like that. Seeing has something to do with believing. You are right on. Anyone else? Any thoughts? Yeah, uh, this is Mark from Springfield visiting. Um, Mark from Springfield, so my biking buddy. Tell us, what do you think? Yeah, I got my bike back there. Wants to go to Colorado, but um, <laughs> anyways, the um, the thing is, is what's what's interesting is we were we haven't walked with him, but we we we've been saved by hearing about him. Yes. Um. So Thomas is maybe a representation of, in in a strange way, us <laughs> not having not having um, seen him in the nail prints. So as he ends, as he ends the, um, the verse, he says, you know, you have believed because you've seen me. Yeah. Blessed are those who haven't seen me and believe. So he's talking about us. Like, we're just going by what we heard. And, and yes. we can't see the nail prints. But I like that. I like that. Good. Good observation. Thanks, Mark. Good stuff. Anyone else? Got time for me? You have one or two. Um, Go ahead, Richmond House. Richmond House, it's Jill. Um, Sounds like Jill. Hi, Jill. <laughs> hi. I, I'm, I'm comforted by this. I have the take on it that, um, and I've always felt that Thomas was, it's okay that he, he you know, needed proof or whatever, because mm. we're all different. We yes. all have different personalities. There were 12 of them. And this guy, he just, you know, he said, I'm not going to believe until I see with my own eyes. So I've always been comforted by that, even though I'm not that Thomas person. But yeah. I think we're all different. We all come at these situations and this situation with different perspectives. So I'm okay with it. Good, good. I'm glad to know you're okay with it, Jill. <laughs> I think that there's... Just for the record, so am I. Okay. I think there's something in addition. Oh, I, Lee, you're jumping in. You're, you're hitchhiking this time. Okay, go ahead. Um, and that is you yourself uh, uh, just commented on the many messianic uh, events, so-called messianic events in first century. Yeah. Time, and not one of those guys... Uh, achieved the level of resurrection. And exactly. so why would anybody believe that Jesus was any different? Also, <laughs> throughout all of Mark, Jesus is telling his disciples and, and additional followers all the stuff that was going to happen, and right. they had a history of not getting it. Yep. yep. So it's, it's not surprising that uh, something as crazy pants as a resurrection was yeah. hard to believe in the absence of any 
physical evidence. Yes, yes. Good observations. And, and yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I think it's unfortunate that, that Thomas has been labeled with that moniker, you know, Doubting Thomas. You know, it's, it has followed him through the centuries. Now, to be sure, Jesus said to him, stop doubting and believe. Um, you, could, you, could, you could give that text a more, uh, a, a bit of a twist or a more literal uh, translation. Stop acting like a non-believer and instead believe. That's, some translators prefer that. But the truth is, and, and Lee, you've suggested this, that, that Thomas was reacting the same way that all of the followers of Jesus reacted. Luke, you remember, tells us that the women heard the angels say, he's risen, and they believed, and they took off, and they found the men, and they told them what the angels said, and Luke writes this, they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Mark tells us that when Jesus appeared to the disciples, he rebuked them for their lack of faith and for their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Now, commentators are, are divided on whether or not Thomas was there. Mark doesn't mention Thomas. I tend to think that Thomas wasn't there because because that kind of a rebuke, at least as according to Mark, seems, seems difficult to reconcile with, with Jesus' embrace of Thomas in our text uh, and, and being okay with that, as Jill has said. I really think, and, and I may be out on a limb here, I think the key to understanding Thomas' obstinance might go back to John chapter 11. You remember the conversation uh, with Jesus and the other followers when he was going to return to Bethany to, to raise Lazarus. So let me just remind you of, of just a few of those details and a couple of the comments because that happened chronologically pretty near to Jesus' final return to Jerusalem his, his suffering, and his death. In John chapter 10, we're told that the Jewish leaders had tried to stone Jesus for the way that he spoke about his relationship to, to God as Father. It's in those, those, those words there where he refers to the Father and I are one, making himself equal with God. But John tells us that he escaped their grasp. We don't know how that happened, but Jesus escaped their grasp. So then he and his followers... They, they left Jerusalem, and they went to a region across the Jordan River, and Jesus stayed there for some time, a few days, and many came to believe in him. And then came the message from Mary and Martha, who lived in Bethany, that their brother Lazarus was sick. And Lazarus, we know, was a dear friend of Jesus. The message was, Lord, the one you love is sick. So Jesus decided that they needed to go back to Bethany, which is less than two miles away from Jerusalem, in order to check in on Lazarus. And his disciples said, But Rabbi, just a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. 
and yet you want to go back? So he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. <laughs> His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, look guys, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. At least at that point, at that moment in time, Thomas was all in. Thomas had been following Jesus long enough that he decided Jesus defined his life for him. Thomas did not want to live a life without Jesus, and so he believed in Jesus and that life wouldn't be worth living without him, so let's go back to Jerusalem and we'll die with him. Doubting Thomas? Certainly not then. But it wasn't long until, like the rest of the disciples, he deserted Jesus. When the heat was on and the possibility of suffering, death, for following Jesus was more real than ever, he ran for his life. Here's what I think. In a word, Thomas was a devastated man. And perhaps that was why he was not with the disciples the first time, he loved Jesus so much and was so devastated that he had lost him, he could not bear to even talk about Jesus because it reminded him of all that was lost. And I think he was devastated that he had failed Jesus, devastated that he had become a man that he never intended to be, devastated that he loved his own life more than he loved Jesus. So when the others began to tell him about the risen Jesus, that they had seen Jesus and been with him, I think Thomas's inward response is, I can't go there. I can imagine him saying to his friends, look, it's not that I don't believe you, but I need more than your word. It's not that I don't trust you. I know you mean well, and you do believe that you saw him, but, but I lost him once, and I'm not over it. So I can't allow myself the possibility of losing him again I saw him die, I saw the nails, and I saw the spear thrust into his heart. It will take me touching his wounds to believe again. And I wonder if a big part of what Thomas was feeling was believing 
in his acceptability to continue to be a lifelong follower of Jesus. But to his credit, for whatever reason, Thomas showed up the next time they got together. And by the way, you might be interested to know that it's these, these two Sunday night meetings that are the reason, or at least sort of the genesis of the reason, that the church has for centuries embraced Sunday as the day of worship. When it is referred to as the Lord's Day in Scripture, it is because Sunday was the Lord's resurrection day. And more than likely, when they gathered together these first few times, these meetings were a combination of, well, what do we do now, folks? Those kinds of conversations and probably a whole lot of prayer. So Thomas joins them. Jesus shows up right on cue. And he speaks those remarkable words that we talked about last week. Peace be with you. Shalom be with you. The presence of God be with you, meaning it is well for your soul. It is well for the soul of those who belong to God as a result of Jesus' atoning work on the cross, which he had just completed. And then he turns his attention to Thomas and speaks those words that changed his life forever. He invited Thomas to touch his wounds. And Thomas' response, Thomas' response was an absolute scandal in the Jewish world. To attribute lordship and deity to a human was unthinkable. But did you notice Jesus accepted his proclamation? And in an instant, Thomas' concerns were gone. Jesus accepted those words from Thomas because they were true because he is Lord, and because he is God. And such intimacy. Sure, Thomas, right here. See those, touch those. Oh, in my side? You know, and, and, and so Jesus, can't you just picture him? He's, he's tugging on his robe, and he's pulling up his robe, and he's moving his undergarment. Here, here, Thomas, right here. Check it out. See that it's real. See that I, I really am who I am. It's just remarkable. Remarkable intimacy. And that's what I love so much about this story. Jesus met Thomas at the exact point of his doubts. All those emotions and the grief that was swirling around in Thomas were expressed in his desire to see and touch the wounds of Jesus. It's if it's as if he was saying, if Jesus can meet me in this pit that I am in, I will be his again for good. And I think that kind of challenge, spoken or unspoken, Jesus finds very hard to resist. So, so what, can, what can we learn? Just a couple of, of quick observations. First, I see... I see here an answer to the question, what about doubt? Thomas' experience reminds us that doubt is a real part of our fallen human condition. I think maybe the more important question is, so what do we do with doubt? 
when we have doubts? Answer, seek the presence of Jesus. These pandemic days have potential, don't they, to fill us with all kinds of doubts. I find myself doubting that life will ever be the same. I find myself doubting that, that we'll be able to do some of those things that we have just so assumed for our, our lifetime. I find myself not being sure, doubting, if I can avoid getting the virus. And I am one of those people in that vulnerable age group. You know, fear and doubt, they're just kind of two sides of the same coin. And, and, and if, I, if I get that virus, what then? And I wonder too, as I mentioned a moment ago, if, if Thomas' desire to see Jesus for himself came from a heart that needed desperately to be reassured that Jesus really was alive, and was willing to accept him in his failure. In fact, I found myself wondering this week if maybe that was more the source of his unbelief. Not so much that Jesus hadn't come back from the dead. You know, Thomas might have been the only one of the disciples that was dialed into the fact that, well, Jesus did tell us three times that he was going to die and come back. Possibly Thomas didn't doubt that Jesus had come back from the dead. Maybe Thomas was filled with doubt about the love of Jesus for him, who at one point in his life had so strongly declared, I am all in, let's go back to Jerusalem and die with him if that's what we have to do. And that's not who he was now for whatever reason. I love the, uh, this line from Wolfhart Pannenberg, was a, a 20th century German theologian. Say that three times real fast. Wolfhart Pannenberg. <laughs> his theology is about as hard to read as his name is to pronounce. He says this, The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. And he says that in light of these post-resurrection stories. You know, he says, you know, these, there's, there's just so much that makes sense about these post-resurrection stories. You know, as, as N.T. Wright mentioned earlier, you know, all of the followers of the would-be messiahs didn't spread stories that their messiah or their hoped-for messiah had come back to life. These disciples do. Not only do they spread the news, but they are willing to, to stand in the fire for Jesus. So Pomberg says, the evidence for his resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. He says this first, it is a very unusual event. True. And second, if you believe it, you have to change the way you live. I tend to think that that's what was going on the mind of Thomas. He doubted his ability to be faithful. Jesus shows up to prove to Thomas that he loved him. 
and would use him on his continued kingdom mission, even though this would probably not be the last failure in Thomas' life. And by the way, did you know that Thomas has another title in the church? It's not well known, and it's used far less. It's Apostle of India. Church tradition tells us, <laughs> I love this. Church tradition tells us that Thomas was so convinced of his worth to Jesus, so convinced of the importance of the gospel, that he took it farther than any of the others did. He went all the way to India with a lot of stops on the way, planting churches and seeing people come to know Jesus. And I have read that even in a very non-Christian country, such as India, in a country where there is a lot of hostility towards Christianity, it's not unusual for people to know the story, or at least some version of the story, of Thomas the missionary, Thomas the apostle of India. Another lesson, very quickly that flows out of this. As Jesus embraced Thomas where he was at, so I believe he will embrace us. One writer says, you know, Thomas is not redeemed from his imperfections, but he's redeemed in them. I love that. The resurrection does not magically take away our painful past, our painful memories, the failures. Christianity is not a magic wand that erases the hard parts of life, but we bring our whole imperfect selves, our whole stories, to the resurrection. Thomas reminds us that Christianity is not about perfection. Christianity is about Jesus, and Jesus making himself known through people who are far less than perfect, leading to a third very quick lesson this morning. If you're like me, there are a lot of things in your life that you have doubts about. And some of the things that, that cause me the greatest pain in my life are, are the failures that I've had, the, the ways that I have failed as a follower of Jesus. I feel like I have been Thomas so many times in my life. And, and, and not only have I been Thomas in my failure, but then I, I also tend to live with that Thomas mindset of, am I, am I good enough? Am, am, I, am I worth his time? Will he, will he show up? And will he still love me? And, and I think if you, if you wrestle with those kinds of doubts from time to time because of this or that experience in your life, I feel like there's, there's, a, there's a good lesson here for us to, to, to take our doubt to the source. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus walks into that room, pronounces peace be with you, turns to Thomas, and addresses using the very words that Thomas had used. He addresses Thomas's mental state in life. Did Jesus know those words? 
Is it possible that the other followers have said to Jesus, oh, you know, Jesus, you, you, you've, you've got to show up and help Thomas. And, and let us tell you what he said. We don't know whether they, they shared that or whether Jesus just knew that. My suspicion is that he knew before the disciples may have told him if they did. And the point is, Jesus knows the doubts that we have. Jesus knows the fears that we have. Where are you going with those? Who are you turning to with those? There is, there is great reason to, to turn to, to godly individuals, to be committed to that life in Christian community and fellowship. There is, there's great strength and there's great wisdom. We talk a lot about that at Applewood, reminding one another of the truth. But most important, foremost, is we go to Jesus. We go to Jesus. We make our doubts a matter of, of conversation. In these days when our lives are filled with doubt, in these days when we wonder whether or not our God really is in control, in these days when crisis touches us and we wonder, does he really love me? Is he really good? We need to take those doubts to the source and let him meet us in times of prayer and devotion and fellowship in ways that touch us and reaffirm and reassure us of who we are and who he wants to be to us, Lord and God, and then through us. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Risen Lord Jesus, you who know every situation of our lives, you who know every word before it is, is out of our mouth, you who have redeemed us in our brokenness so that we might be, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, those, those cracked vessels, those earthen jars that are fragile with chips and cracks and yet contain in them the righteousness and the holiness of God. Oh, oh, how we want to be those people in these crazy days in which we live. Help us, we pray. Holy Spirit, you who are the presence of the living Christ, who lives in us, oh, remind us, bring us back to the truth, speak into our lives, be that teacher, that comforter, that counselor that Jesus said you would be for us so that our lives may point to our risen Lord Jesus and be a witness to him, even in the midst of all of the brokenness that is a part of our daily lives. For his great glory, we pray. Amen. 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 Blessings on you, brothers and sisters. So, brothers and sisters, <clears throat> there is great great hope and confidence to be known in the truth of our risen Lord coming to us in our lives where 
oftentimes there is failure and pain. He comes. He comes to meet us. He comes to, to, to breathe life into us and to offer us the hope of continued relationship with him as we live for the glory of his name. I want to go back and just very quickly revisit Mother's Day, if I can, and say to all of you moms in our congregation, especially those of you who have kids at home, there is hope. There is hope. And I know that for many of you, you're working and you're being a teacher and you're supervising your kids and and you're just about crazy from this process, <clears throat> and you really doubt that it's ever going to end. Find Jesus reaching out to you and meeting you in those places of doubt. For all of us who face doubts concerning the, the financial feasibility of life during this time and when it comes to a close, there is peace and hope to be found in Jesus. For those of us who face sickness and death in these times, there is hope to be found even when we doubt. God is good to us and for us all through these days. Praise be to his name. Amen. Amen.